Sunday, March the 13th. Welcome to the Sperlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. And so today we're beginning a new series. We're going to be thinking about what is one of perhaps the more serious and hard to understand books of the New Testament. We're going to be looking through the book of Hebrews. So let's, uh, before we begin digging into what Hebrews is about and having an overview, let's hear from the first four verses of Hebrews chapter one. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through the son who he is appointed heir of all things and through whom he has made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of him being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Just our beginning, a couple of verses that help us understand some of the mega themes of this short book, 13 chapters, which highlight again and again and again who Jesus is and how he is sovereign and superior over all. We're going to uh, watch a short video now. It's about eight minutes to get yourself comfortable. But it's from the Bible Project who help us uh, understand some of the big pictures and the large narratives of the Bible. It's quite fast moving. It's quite fast paced. So come with your ears ready to hear. But this is going to give us a good framework to think about Hebrews into the coming months. So let's watch that now. The letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God, where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians. That's where the name of the letter comes from. 
We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, and lastly with the sacrifices in the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the sun. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. 
But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people. And so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God. So don't do that which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, This final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages, they're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. Wow. Wasn't that great? As I say, very fast moving. The uh, link is on the screen if you would like to watch it again as a way of giving you a big picture of what this book is about. But just a short recap from me. What is this book around? Well, as we've just seen, we discover very quickly that this book 
was not written by anybody named. We don't really know who it was written by. Some say Apollos, some say Paul. But instead of it being a letter like Paul wrote most of the time, it feels like it's more of a talk, a sermon. It hasn't got a start, dear such and such, from such and such, and an end with a greeting. It doesn't really mention people personally by name, like many of the other letters of the Old Testament. So we're not really sure who wrote it. But we do know whoever wrote it was probably a Jewish Christian because they have an intimate and amazing knowledge of the Old Testament, especially the Torah. And this book is set out to help us understand how the Old Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the New Testament are brought together in Jesus Christ. So we don't quite know who the author was, but we do know that they were a Jewish Christian with an amazing understanding of the Old Testament. We don't really know who it was written to either, to the Hebrews. Well, that name was only given a couple of hundred years after Jesus was on this earth. So we're not really sure who it was written to. But again, we pretty much understand that it was written to Jewish Christians because they must have had a good knowledge of the Torah. They must have had a good knowledge of the Old Testament. And this is a helpful way of bringing together for them what they knew of the Old Testament and the Torah with what they now know because of Christ. We also, though, very quickly understand that this book was probably written to a group of followers, a group of believers who were living through hard times. And this is where we can probably relate most You see, it was obviously um, a time where these people were living through some kind of persecution, through hard times where it wasn't easy to own your faith. Perhaps the economy and everything around it was, was kind of hard. Well, we can relate to that. Because actually, as we go through this book again and again, we hear words like persecution, stand firm, do not listen to the ways of this world. There's so much in here about standing firm. So it's obvious that this was written to a group of people who were being pressed in from every side. It was not an easy time. We can relate to that, can't we? And therefore, as we wander through Hebrews, we know that there is going to be so many things through God's word that will encourage us, but also will challenge us. So what's the book about? Don't quite know who wrote it. We don't quite know who it was written to, but we can relate. But what are the main themes that we're going to discover? Well, very quickly, in the first chapter, we have the most amazing words, even in those four verses that we have just had read to us, that help us understand this book is going to help us see who Jesus really is. And it's going to help us understand how we uh, see Jesus in the light of the Old Testament, but also in the light of the future. You see, it's a masterclass in Christology. Christology means the theology of Christ. And just like John chapter one is kind of this amazing weaving together um, theology of who Jesus is. The whole of Hebrews is a masterclass in understanding who Jesus is. It's truth after truth about why Jesus was important and how he has fulfilled everything that was to come so that we can live in a new kingdom. 
One thing we'll discover very quickly, though, is that we need a good knowledge of the Old Testament uh, to understand a lot of what is in Hebrews. I wonder what your favourite book is in the Old Testament. For me, I love Isaiah. I find Isaiah is brilliant because it talks about Jesus without ever really mentioning his name. But actually, that is true for the whole of the Old Testament. Mike Pilavati and Andy Croft, <clears throat> excuse me, in their uh, book Storylines, which is a great read, um, talk about how you can find Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. They explain that it's a little bit like the Where's Wally books. You open it up and there's a picture before you of something, perhaps a pyramids and all of that kind of thing. But somewhere in there, you will find Wally. They say it's very similar to the books of the Old Testament. You might have a picture of Joseph, perhaps, in Egypt. But in the story, there will be the themes of redemption, the themes of forgiveness, the themes of a coming one who will save them. Of course, that's Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, there are so many hints and so many places where we see who Jesus is. Hebrews brings together many of the stories and themes of the Old Testament and says, and look and see, Jesus has fulfilled them. Or look and see, Jesus is there with them. Truth after truth of who Jesus is and how he's fulfilled what is to come. That's what Hebrews is about. But in these first four verses, I guess it's a little bit of an overview. We discover that Jesus is the telos. And telos in Greek basically means the goal and the ultimate meaning of all that has gone before. Jesus is the telos, the goal and the ultimate meaning of all that has gone before. You see, it's saying that the forefathers, through the prophets and through the Torah, got told of what was to come. They didn't understand it. They didn't see it. But it was foretold of Jesus's coming. But secondly, these verses one to four highlight that Jesus is central, not only to fulfilling the past, but what is to come. Jesus is sovereign over everything in the future. And actually, because of who Jesus is and what he did in the cross and the resurrection, it means that everything that is to come must be seen in the light of who Jesus is and what he has done. So not only does it make sense of what has preceded Jesus's coming, it will only make sense of what is to come. We see the present and the future through the lens of Jesus and who he is and his sovereignty and his superiority. And when we see that, then, then, then and only then can Christians fully understand who they are and how they should live. So you see, this book goes on and says, this is who Jesus is, and therefore this is how you should live. And remember I said at the beginning, this was to a a group of people who were in persecution, who were struggling with the times. Well, they can see the present and the future through the lens of the sovereignty of Christ. That is really interesting. You see, again and again in this book, there are calls to be faithful, There are calls to stand firm. There are calls to put up with the persecution. There are calls to continue uh, in the faith, being cheered on by the uh, heritage that we stand in. 
You see, because of what Christ has done, we therefore understand the present, we understand the future. And the book of Hebrews is going to help us understand that even more. It's going to be fun as we wander through together. I'm excited for what we will discover in these rich chapters of scripture. But as I come to land, I guess what is our response um, as we think about the book of Hebrews? I guess for me, as I start this uh, this series together, I'm saying, Lord, teach me about who you are. Open my eyes again to your sovereignty. Open my eyes again to who you really are and how you fulfilled the past and, and now how I can see the future because of who you are. But also my prayer is, Help me to courageously accept your call. Help me to follow you, even in hard times, to stand firm. And I am choosing to stand firm because I know who Jesus is. And I trust him and I know my life is safe in his hands. So as we begin together, why don't I pray? Asking God to teach us more about who he is but also giving us the power to stand firm courageously and be faithful followers of him. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you. And these short verses in Hebrews have reminded us why we trust you, for you were there before time began. You were appointed an heir of all things. You made the universe. You are the exact representation of God on this earth. Jesus, we thank you that you forgive us and that you are now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Therefore, we, <laughs> our lives are safe in your hands and we trust you and we love you. And so as we wander through Hebrews together, open our eyes again to see you. Open our ears to hear you. May we know who you are. And in the light of that, may we discover more and more about whose we are and who we are. I'm trusting that you will help me know that I can stand firm in you. I'm asking that you give me a courageous faith that even though times might be tough, I can stand firm in you. Help me hear the challenges in Hebrews and help me know that in the light of what you've done, these are a correct response of worship. So I choose through the next few months to let you open my eyes again to see you, but also to stand firm in truth and to stand faithfully as a follower of you. In Jesus' name, we pray for each other. Amen.